My name is Emanuela Chiara Gillard, and I am a senior research fellow at the Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict at the University of Oxford. It is an honor and a pleasure to be contributing to the United Nations Audiovisual Library of International Law today. I am going to be speaking about the tensions between sanctions, counterterrorism measures, and humanitarian action. An important number of current conflicts involve non-state armed groups. With increasing frequency, these groups exercise control over territory and civilians. Very frequently, these civilians are in need of assistance. While primary responsibility for meeting the needs of civilians lies with the party with control over them, almost inevitably, there is also a need for humanitarian action. In responding, humanitarian actors must overcome numerous challenges. Insecurity from active hostilities, a breakdown in law and order, difficult terrain, bureaucratic constraints imposed by belligerents. In recent years, however, humanitarian actors trying to operate in certain contexts have faced an additional hurdle. Sanctions and counterterrorism measures imposed against organized armed groups with control of the civilians. What is the source of the problem? Choking financing debt to groups designated as terrorists is a key element of the international and national counterterrorism strategies. As a matter of law, this is achieved by two principal means. First, by financial sanctions against the groups, which freeze their assets, but also prohibit providing designated groups directly or indirectly with funds, assets, and a range of other resources, colloquially referred to as material support. The second way this is achieved is by counterterrorism measures that make it an offense to carry out a range of activities that may provide similar financial or other assistance to the designated groups. Similarly, country-specific sanctions opposed, um, adopted by the United Nations Security Council or by intergovernmental bodies such as the European Union can impose similar asset freezes against designated groups for a range of reasons, including to promote compliance with international humanitarian law by these groups. What is the problem? The groups designated either under counterterrorism measures or under country-specific uh, sanctions regimes can frequently be organized armed groups, parties to non-international armed conflicts who exercise control over territory with civilians uh, who may be in severe need. These include, for example, al-Shabaab in Somalia, al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula in Yemen, and Boko Haram in Nigeria. And these are three contexts that were um, identified as at risk of famine in 2017. Other examples are ISIS in Syria and Hamas in Gaza. The problems arise because the prohibited assistance under the counterterrorism measures or sanctions regimes 
has been interpreted extremely broadly. There is a real risk that transactions and activities carried out by humanitarian actors in trying to respond to populations in need may fall within the scope of the restrictions. These can be include incidental payments that humanitarian actors may have to make in order to operate as part of their humanitarian operations, or humanitarian relief consignments that are diverted and end up in the hands of the designated groups. More alarmingly, there have been instances where individuals have been themselves listed under UN sanctions for having provided medical assistance to members of designated groups. And this is particularly problematic because the entitlement to receive medical care um, and the protection of those who provide such medical care to civilians and fighters alike is a foundational principle of international humanitarian law. Now, attention has focused principally on prohibitions to provide material support, so funds or other assets. However, there are other ways in which sanctions can also adversely affect humanitarians' capacities to operate, and also to do so in a manner that is principled, in accordance with humanitarian principles, and safe. Let me give you an example. Um, the European Union's Syria sanctions, um, as initially adopted, included a prohibition on the purchase of crude oil or petroleum products within Syria, essentially making it impossible for humanitarian actors even to drive their vehicles. Following constructive engagement between humanitarian actors and EU member states, an exemption was included in the sanctions regime. I'll return to this later on in the talk. This was not the only element in the sanctions regime that was problematic. Um, at a time when the only way to travel safely to the far east of the country, where there were significant uh, humanitarian needs, um, was by one airline. It was impossible to travel by road, but that one airline was itself designated. So it was impossible to purchase the tickets to travel safely. Very similarly, um, there was only one telephone company provider who uh, provi who's, was able to provide coverage in certain areas of the country. And obviously, telephone is key to be able to operate in a principled manner. But that one telephone company was also designated. So it was impossible, it was prohibited to acquire their services. This gives you an idea of the range of ways in which sanctions can impair humanitarian actors' operations. Funding agreements between humanitarian actors and institutional donors, so state donors, the United Nations, the EU, also frequently impose uh, restrictions or particular obligations to avoid um, humanitarians inadvertently providing assistance to designated groups in the part of their operations, but I'm not going to enter into this aspect of the problem today. 
what are the consequences of these restrictions? The approach that states have adopted to giving effect to their obligations under counterterrorism measures or sanctions in national law is by no means uniform. Some states have broadened the scope of the offenses that we find in international measures or designated different groups of persons or entities. This means that support to a group that may be permissible under the law of one state is criminal under the law of another. As a number of states have given their courts extraterritorial jurisdiction over these offenses, more than one state's laws might be applicable. This situation has given rise to an extremely complex legal landscape that humanitarian organizations and their staff must navigate to avoid civil or criminal liability. And what we have seen over the years is that concerns about falling foul of these prohibitions have frequently led to overcompliance with the law and placing unwarranted limits on humanitarian operations. Some humanitarian actors have curtailed their operations in certain areas, despite the existence of extremely severe needs for fear of violating the law. This opens humanitarians to allegations of not operating in accordance with humanitarian principles, of not responding with impartiality, which requires them to direct their operations exclusively on the basis of need. But more problematic, it has left people in severe need without the assistance they require. It is not just humanitarian actors who must comply with the restrictions in counterterrorism measures and sanctions. Private actors, such as banks, must also do so. They must refrain from making any funds, financial assets, or other resources and services available directly or indirectly for the benefit of designated persons or entities. And the measures adopted by the banking sector to comply with these obligations have limited humanitarian actors' access to banking services. The Financial Action Task Force an intergovernmental body originally established to develop measures to combat money laundering, but it, that is now also looking at countering terrorist financing, has played an important role in increasing banks' reluctance to provide services to clients perceived as high risk of violating sanctions and counterterrorism measures. When the Financial Action Task Force started looking at this particular issue, it adopted a recommendation, Recommendation 8, on the non-profit sector. Although the Financial Action Task Force's recommendations are not legally binding and the FATF cannot impose sanctions, compliance with them by member states and the banking system is peer-reviewed. And a poor peer review can be damaging for a country's financial sector. NGOs operating in what banks consider high-risk jurisdiction 
that is in or near areas where designated armed groups are based or operate, um, or faith-based, particularly Muslim INGOs, have been particularly affected by these restrictions in the funding services. They are experiencing difficulties in accessing, accessing the services they need that are crucial in their capacity to fundraise, but also to disperse funds and therefore operate. Um, they have been experiencing extremely significant delays in transactions, increased costs in actually transferring money, and more significantly, uh, they have been unable to open accounts, receive donations, or have had their bank accounts outright closed. And I, I find it telling um, that in the words of a representative of a large and very well-established British international NGOs, the extent of the banking system restriction has become so significant that increasingly banks are dictating where humanitarian actors can operate. Where do we go to from here to reduce the tensions? While the source of the problem is the same, these prohibition on providing directly or indirectly support to designated entities, and so are the consequences, how we reduce these tensions varies depending on the normative source of the, restriction, of the restrictions, and in particular, whether we're talking about sanctions or counterterrorism measures. As far as sanctions are concerned, the solution lies essentially at the international, at the intergovernmental level, with the Security Council or with the European Union. They are in the position to adopt exemptions or exceptions, the, the, the term varies, to the prohibitions. In fact, the Security Council has done so, but only with regard to one sanctions regime so far, the Somalia sanctions. At the time of the famine in 2010, the Security Council adopted an exception, noting that the asset freeze, which includes the prohibition on making funds available directly or indirectly to the designated group, does not apply to the payment of funds or the provision of assets to, it, to ensure the timely delivery of humanitarian assistance. We therefore have one exemption that actually allows humanitarian actors to operate without fear of falling foul of sanctions. There is no reason why there is not a similar exemption in all sanctions regimes the same problems arise across the board. The same issues uh, with sanctions arises when the European Union imposes autonomous sanctions. And as I mentioned, there has been a recent positive experience in this regard in relation to the sanctions that's, uh, that the European Union had imposed in relation to Syria. As I mentioned, there was a prohibition on purchasing oil products that made it impossible for humanitarian actors to operate. And following consultations between humanitarian actors and member states, 
the European Union amended the sanctions regime to include an exemption allowing humanitarians to purchase uh, petroleum products within Syria in order to operate. The tension needs to be resolved at the international level because at the national level, states are simply obliged to give effect to the UN and EU sanctions. I think it's important, essential, to find ways to include similar exemption for humanitarian actions in all measures. I think it's particularly telling that at a time when sanctions have been imposed for impeding humanitarian action by the Security Council in a number of contexts, it is paradoxical that in practice, sanctions also effectively criminalize the provision of humanitarian assistance. If we now turn to counterterrorism measures, here both international organizations such as the UN and the European Union and states have a role to play in reducing the tensions between counterterrorism measures and humanitarian action. At the global level, the key instruments aimed at choking the financing to designated groups are the 1999 International Convention for the Suppression of the Financing of Terrorism and Security Council Resolution 1373 of 2001. Neither instrument includes exemptions for humanitarian action, but the crimes are extremely narrowly phrased. They require the intention or knowledge to provide support to a designated entity and that the funds be used to commit a terrorist act. However, when giving effect to these measures at national levels, states have adopted a range of approaches. As I mentioned, some did retain this initially narrow approach, setting a high mental element of intention and on knowledge and focusing on the commission of a specific act. But other states have in fact broadened the scope of the prohibition and in particular um, prohibiting the provision of funds to a designated group rather than the for the commission of an act. I think going forward, it is um, important that states that give effect to counterterrorism legislation adopt as narrow a focus as possible. And I think we have seen some encouraging examples in recent years in this regard. As states have become aware of the problems, they have, when adopting national legislation, tried to find ways of avoiding the tensions, in, in particular by including exceptions for humanitarian actions. By way of example, the UK's Counterterrorism and Border Security Act, adopted in early 2019, includes a new offense of entering or remaining in a designated area. However, it includes an exception for this, saying the offense shall not arise 
if a particular individual is present in a designated area for the purpose of providing humanitarian assistance. There are also encouraging signs from the European Union. The recently adopted Directive on Combating Terrorism includes a safeguard clause that specifies that the offences included in the Directive shall not apply in relation to humanitarian assistance. It is essential that states give effect to this safeguard clause when implementing the directive at national level. Until recently, humanitarian actors were restricting their operations out of concern that they might be falling foul of the law, but there had not actually been any proceedings. We are seeing that things are beginning to change. And I believe the Security Council's resolution on foreign terrorist fighters is having a significant effect in this regard. States have given effect to it at the national level. And in recent years, we've seen a number of investigations and a small number of prosecutions of individuals who claim they have been carrying out humanitarian action, but who prosecutors believe may have fallen foul of the laws um, relating to foreign terrorist fighters. And it was in regard to this legislation that the UK adopted the exemption. In addition to this number of investigations and prosecution, there have also been a small number of civil claims before the United States courts under the False Claims Act. By way of conclusion, I do not believe that counterterrorism and sanctions and humanitarian action are inevitably at odds. In fact, they frequently share the same objective of affording protection to civilians caught up by conflict. We simply need to find ways of reconciling tensions to allow humanitarian action to continue in accordance with humanitarian principles and as foreseen by international humanitarian law.